Welcome to episode 119 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Anna Bradley. Anna is executive director of Sentient Media. Sentient Media is a non-profit journalism outlet aimed at making transparent the suffering that goes on in our food systems and trying to inspire readers to think more about the implications of what we eat. Anna also hosts the Sentient Media podcast, which you should go and subscribe to. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 118 others. Please don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. We particularly appreciate uh, ratings and reviews for the podcast. Um, we have, I think, about 40 so far, and they're all extremely kind. It's a great way of helping the voices of my guests get heard by a much wider audience. So thanks in advance. You can find out more about Sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates or search for Sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. And so far, they span over 100 countries around the world. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Anna. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you? Yeah, really good, really good. Well, it's a pleasure to have the chance to talk to you. We've done the usual sort of interactions online and I've obviously followed your work at Sentient Media for a long while. So it's great to have the chance to have a conversation. Um, and I interviewed um, Miko Yavanpar, uh, who you cl work closely with as well. Uh, so again, it's great to get someone else from the Sentient Media team onto the great. guest list here. Yeah, it's awesome. Awesome to be here. Awesome to be a guest. And um, yeah, I'm sure our conversation will be quite different from the one you had with Miko, who's much more like philosophically minded and um, much better read than I am. Um, but yeah, we've been working together for the last just over two, two and a half years now, more or less. And yeah, yeah. yeah it's been an awesome journey at Sentient Media. So he's deep in the jargon and the books and you're a bit more grounded in common sense and down to earth. <laughs> We'll find out and we'll get some feedback from Miko if he listens to this as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you know, this is a series of conversations about uh, what I think of as the two deepest and most important philosophical questions. What's real? You know, how should we think about reality of the universe and uh, what and who matters? And I've got an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularize and develop this really simple um, worldview called sentientism, which suggests that when we're thinking about what's real, we should use evidence and reason to work out what to believe. Um, and when it comes to thinking about who gets to matter ethically, the clue is in the name, we should have compassion for all sentient beings, any being that has the capacity to suffer or flourish or to feel anything really. Um, but I'm talking to people in these conversations, as you know, who um, both agree and disagree with that worldview. So it'll be fascinating to understand you know, how you think about these crazily big questions. But before we get on to those, how would you best introduce yourself and your work? Yeah, thank you, Jamie. Um, so I'm Anna Bradley. I'm the executive director at Sentient Media. Um, and if you're not aware of Sentient Media, we're a nonprofit journalism outlet and we report on animals, climate, farming, those kind of topics. Uh, and essentially our mission is to create transparency around the suffering that's inside our global food systems. So usually this is uh, invisible suffering. We don't see it reported um, in the media. We don't see it when we go to the supermarket to buy our food. Uh, and what we want to do is inspire our readers and the community around us uh, to start thinking more about the repercussions of what we eat. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be a summation of, of the work I do at Sentient Media. Yeah, brilliant. It's such a distinctive voice in the media. And I think our joint aspiration is that it becomes less unusual over time uh, as yeah. the cultural default shift, but let's see. And you're, yeah. you're also a fellow podcaster as well because of the Sentient Media podcast. So I'd point people at that too, of course. 
Yeah, the Sentient Media podcast, something that uh, I wish I had more time to apply to. Um, but yeah, essentially, we, I usually do one a month uh, at the moment. I'd love to ramp that up uh, if time allows. Um, yeah. But yeah, thinking about like the media and, and as you said, like Sentient Media is a distinctive voice because there isn't much coverage. I always like to like if I'm interviewing or if I'm being interviewed, uh, I just like to ask a very quick question, um, which is, Jamie, when was the last time you saw farmed animal uh, news in mainstream media with farmed animals being centered as like the the feature of the story does anything come to mind uh, i'm really struggling to think of anything yeah i mean the the, the the only time i think is where i can think of is maybe with the farmed animal escape you know so if a mm. if a pig escapes from a, a truck on its way to the slaughterhouse that's the only time where people seem to switch instantaneously into empathizing with that being and thinking what it would be like for them and people are cheering for them to you know survive and go to a sanctuary isn't that interesting yeah but otherwise it's generally you know they're a commodity they're an object there you know and, and even when the term welfare is used it's more of a second-hand sort of we as humans are going to be generous to not egregiously harming them. It's still not really mm. thinking of them as sentient beings in their own right. It's a, it's a sort of a secondhand, weird, dominion-like, you know, okay, fine, we won't harm you too much, but it's not really empathizing. So I think it's deeply yeah. rare, yeah. I, I think it is too. And at Sendia Media, obviously we have a global team. We track news, we track what's being reported on. And we have, you know, all these Slack channels with all these, the latest stories that have come out and animals, like you know it can be about fishing it can be about you know migrant workers being abused uh it can be about yeah like you say an, an individual animal that escapes um or it can be about companion animals about dogs and cats and and their issues or you know we do see more reporting on wildlife as well but yeah. very rarely do we see anything that actually centers farmed animals and when you think of the number of you know the quantity of uh, farmed animals that are out there you know at least 72 billion land animals more than a trillion you know aquatic um animals it's it, it it becomes really alarming to think that we're not reporting on this in a way that allows people to think about it or to consider you know these animals that are you know have been proven scientifically to have feelings um and you know sentience yeah. for, for many of the animals um that we consider food so uh, yes yeah, so sorry go on yeah and i think we'll come back to that when we talk about the future as well because that's the it's yeah. a central mindset shift of just recognizing these beings matter intrinsically in their own right and it's such a simple idea but it's so broken in the default human worldview and in our media it's um and once you've got it it makes you feel like you're an alien living on a strange planet surrounded by you know almost a, people who think in such a radically different way it's quite hard to rationalize it sometimes but uh, mm. yeah yeah. But, and I also, so I love the work you're doing. I think it's deeply distinctive. And I have obviously have an enormous bias for any organization with the word sentient in its, in its title. Yay. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, let's get into those two big um, philosophical questions. And to pull back from the sort of ethics and the animal topics, the first question is what's real and how should we go about believing things? So, for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up in maybe a more mystical, supernatural, maybe religious context, family and society, or one that was already quite naturalistic and maybe atheist, agnostic, scientifically minded, and how that mm. side of their thinking's changed over time, if it has. So, yeah, you can wind the clock back as far as you like and it'd be fascinating to know your story about how you developed that side of your thinking and how you think about it now. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a yeah, it's a great and deep and big question. Um, and I I guess I'll wind the clock, you know, back to you know my first kind of memories and moments where I started to consider existence and life outside of myself. I guess. Um, so I was six when I made the connection um, about animals on the plate and animals suffering. And wow. to me, yeah, to me it was just completely obvious I guess at that age it was like yeah of course animals have feelings like why you know why would we think they didn't and why would we think they don't have their own languages like of course they have their own languages of course we don't understand them it just seemed to me to be totally obvious um so yeah I was lucky you know I've spoken about this before I was lucky that my parents supported me in that so when you know I kind of started to make connections they told me the truth they didn't lie about anything or try and make it like oh well it's just what we eat um, you know, they told me about the, you know, the complexities within it and they supported me in going vegetarian and then eventually vegan. Um, but my family were eating meat. But as far as like religion goes, it's um, I, like I never had a conversation with my parents to my memory um, about God or about there being some kind of ethereal being. It just wasn't part of our conversations. Yeah. Um, but I went to a C of E, I went to a Church of England uh, primary school. So I was exposed in that way, like there was a church attached to the school, but I never saw it as anything other than kind of just like fun and like, a, you know, a sense of community or whatever. But there was never any I just I never believed in there being, I guess, you know, this idea of a man sitting in the clouds or whatever, like that just was so unappealing and uninteresting to me. I was yeah. much more interested in animals and in nature. And I guess like my, my parents are uh, not religious, um, but we did celebrate, you know, Christian holidays so Easter Christmas but I guess interestingly uh we kind of tied it to like pagan pagan festivals so yeah. we always celebrated the solstice and the equinox um and I still do so you know my dad and I uh you know we don't do it anymore but we used to go for like a big long sunrise to sunset walk every winter solstice and we'd come home and have a big you know winter stew you know and awesome yeah, like, yeah, the sunshine stew, we call it. Um, so, you know, we've always kind of celebrated those things. And as a younger person, I guess I must have been like, I don't know, 10 or something. I started to um, think about uh, Wicca and Wicca, Wiccan um, religion. So I looked at, yeah, essentially all of it kind of ties to nature. It all ties to like a respect for the beings around us and respect for the land, respect for, you know, for humans, for animals, for plants. Um, and I guess it's hard for me to kind of think about exactly, you know, how that came about in my mind, but it just seems like it always just kind of flowed naturally. And I still have, you know, beliefs today of, you know, respecting nature and respecting animals and respecting the world around us. I don't practice any religion aspect of that, but I guess there's that ritual aspect of like you know respecting the solstice and honoring those shorter and longer days and those transitions um but yeah i think yeah that's a kind of a whistle stop tour <laughs> no that's fascinating thank you so you 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 um there was you you weren't brought up religious there was a christian school but you never bought into any of the supernatural beliefs there were stories and there was communities and there were ritual and you've enjoyed you know, adaptations of those rituals and then, you know, things like the solstices going forward and you feel this sense of connection to nature and, and so on, you've explored those. Um, so that's a fascinating story. The way you feel now um, with that connection to nature and non-human animals, 
there's a load of different ways of describing that and different paths to it and implications of it. So for some people, that is quite a supernatural thing. There's a sense of something magical going on or a transcendent connection or something beyond just the physical and the biological that comes through their sense of you know, what nature is and how we're all connected. Mm. For other people like me, I'm just a really boring sort of naturalistic, that sense of awe and wonder and connectedness is purely a scientific thing. You know, I just think it's ultimately all physics and biology and chemistry, but that doesn't take any of the wonder and awe away. Mm. It's just completely naturalistic. I don't think there's any magic there. Can you pass which of those paths or a blend of the two you feel, you think about, you think now? I I don't think... I ever it's really weird like I don't think I ever believed in magic uh, yeah. in the sense of like an ethereal you know I like you know I'm thinking back to when I was younger and I had my little I, I built a little altar with the elements you know um air water fire etc and I had a little wand from a little willow branch I found or whatever and that you would say is me believing in magic um but I don't I I, I didn't believe in I guess like any any kind of fanciful feeling that I had at that age like I don't like I don't believe in magic I don't believe in some ethereal thing going on but I do believe that nature you know animals like all of us um have incredible power and have incredible uh roles to play in the kind of existence of our planet um and you know that could be described as magical but I believe it's weighted in you know science in reason and and logic because we're talking about like you know the relationship in you know, biodiversity the relationship between you know the ant and the trees and you know the the anteater you know i'm talking about like the whole like global picture um of, of existence which yeah. is real um but it's it's so i guess it's so uh magnificent in a way and so important and so connected to each other that that's you know, could be kind of seen as a kind of a magical thing, but I, but it's real. <laughs> Do yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've th- I think one of my previous guests described, said, you know, reality is awesome enough. You know, we don't need yeah. to make, we don't need to make stuff up. I think, you know, you, some, some people have this sense that scientific way of understanding the world is sort of cold and clinical and mm-hmm. unemotional and, you know, detaches everything and puts everything in little separate boxes. And I don't think it has to be like that at all. I think, um, you know, scientific understanding of reality is completely consistent with the way you describe that sense of awe and wonder and connectedness. And some people exactly. might use more mystical language to describe that. But mm, no, but I believe, yeah, I, I believe in the in the kind of in the reality. Of it. Like, uh, you know, we just finished watching um, David Attenborough's Life of Plants. Did you see that? I haven't seen that yet. No, it's yeah. just incredible. Like, you know, it, anim- like plants are just like you know animals in slow motion. You know, the way that they film it and just you know all of these incredible things that plants are doing that you know you're not aware of and the incredible kind of delicate balance um of the you know the ecosystems that is real (laughs) and it is amazing and i think that's what i always you know gravitated towards in the sense of that's what i that's what i wanted to believe in and i didn't understand anybody who could you know just stand on a spider or you know stand on an ant or even like i remember as a kid down our street it's a you know terrorist house um and they used to on the pavements they used to do weed killer you know and on the little bits of grass that come up you know so valiantly through these paving stones and they would just kill them and I always remember as a kid like just being so sad um you know like why are we killing these little weeds I don't know it all sounds a bit like a bit a bit a bit airy fairy now I'm talking about it but um <laughs> like, no, yeah, I love I it I love it 
so that's that probably covers the what's real question. I think it's pretty pretty straightforward. Thank you. And it's also interesting because I think it's becoming more and more common that people are brought up by default in a naturalistic way of thinking, whereas people of um, you know my generation and 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 others it was actually pretty rare. You know, most people by default started out with some sort of religious worldview, and many of them have moved away from it. But I think over time, it's getting much more common that people grow up with a naturalistic way of thinking and then just stick with it because frankly mm. i don't i don't think there's any better way of understanding the world but yeah. yeah yeah so let's come on to the the next big question what matters so one challenge that's often to put to people like you and me with a broadly naturalistic way of thinking particularly if they have a religious worldview for example they'll say look you know we have a god and god defines good and bad uh, and will ultimately judge us you know, we also have books, you know, the Quran, the Bible, or whatever it is, with lists of rules that defines what good or bad is. You know, we have an objective standard. Um, now, I'd claim that standard is fabricated and therefore is no more objective than anything else, but it is at least a list. You know, they've got something they can point to. Um, but they might turn to a naturalistic person and say, well, what have, what have you got? Right? You've got no grounding for your ethics. What can good and bad and right and wrong even mean to you? So I don't know if you've ever faced that challenge, but how would you respond to that sort of challenge? What now, what's the raw material of morality for you? Why does it? Why does anything matter? Yeah, I, I guess, like in the sense of again, back to this idea of the power of nature and the power of our relationship, like on the planet. That's what you would look to. Um, at, you know, that's what I've always looked to in the sense of like understanding, like why we should be respectful, why we should be, um, you know protecting and, and and supporting communities and, and um diversity like you know biodiversity and i guess the kind of the ritual of you know the earth and the sun and the moon and and these kind of like you know these are like based in a kind of a naturalistic way of thinking it's science but it's also a respect for like the power and the and the aura of, of nature i guess like in reality my response to somebody who was if they came to me with that and then you know I like my response would probably be more a question back to them would be more like you know well how can you have such complexity and such uh different approaches to how you practice your religion within one religion so you know there are so many different ways of practicing christianity there are so many ways of different like of, of practicing all, all of the different faiths that we have um that why is it so hard to believe that somebody who puts their kind of belief and faith in in science and in the world around us why is it so hard to believe that that uh is implausible um yeah i guess yeah and one of the challenges with that sort of you know thinking about nature as a grounding of morality is that some people will take that in a different very different way to the path that you and I take, which is they'll say, look, we should respect nature and its processes. Um, you know, it's an awesome, wonderful thing. But within nature, there are cycles and patterns and ecosystems and uh, predation is a natural part of that process. You know, survival of the fittest, you know, humans are the apex predator. So I'm gonna have my Big Mac because, you know, basically that's the analog of me being a lion eating a gazelle in the savannah. So isn't, sure. isn't, isn't, isn't that, you know, aren't I, with that ethical view, respecting nature and it's the circle of life, yeah. you know? Right? <laughs> so yeah. That, yeah, I mean, that's obviously like, that's a question that, um, you know, just thinking about veganism um, and people who choose to not eat meat, 
uh, that path that's obviously a you know well what about lions I'm a lion uh, etc yeah. yeah you know <laughs> lol um I I I don't I feel like it's um it, it's a defensive um you know attack really uh, and I think that the response to that is obviously that well okay let's look in nature and let's look at how I mean there is there is uh, there are discoveries and there is um you know truth to the fact that ants and termites and and some other animals do kind of farm um other beings but not to the extent that that we do and not to such detriment of the environment around them as we do so I guess, you know, <laughs> when you're eating your Big Mac, that's hardly the same as going out into the savannah and um, chasing down a gazelle and yeah. killing it with your, you know, with your bare teeth, you know, uh, there's, there's quite a big difference. And yeah, I guess it, it it's kind of just like one of those arguments that um, you come up against a lot, like protein, you know, all, all of these like, you know, little attacks that people want to make um, on those who kind of threaten their way of, of justifying what it is that they're doing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's part of a portfolio of amazing mental gymnastics that people use to post-rationalize just not changing and doing what they've been indoctrinated to do. Um, and I know that because I did it for many decades myself. You know, it was part of a portfolio of cognitive techniques you can use. So I think that's, that, is, that is true. Um, I think it's also interesting that people very rarely apply that ethical standard, you know, survival of the most violent apex predators. If it's natural, it's good. They very rarely apply that to human ethics because, mm. you know, it's very clear that if you look out into nature, many many awful things are completely normal you know rape infanticide murder outgroup mm -hmm. genocide you know there's if you're going to use nature as an ethical standard the horror of applying that to other sentient beings and to other humans is pretty you know clear so what i think people tend to do is that they'll they'll use that sort of well we should use nature as a model when it comes to thinking about humans and how we should treat non-humans excluding companion animals of course mm, of but we absolutely, it would be horrific to allow us to apply that to human ethics. But of course, some humans, some awful humans do apply exactly that logic to other humans. And it is survival of the most violent and it is in-group, out-group aggression. And, it, and we know where that leads. So, so it's really interesting that even in the response to say, look, let's use nature as an ethical standard, they're applying a completely different ethics to intra-human ethics than they are to intra-sentient ethics. And I think that, that right. shows the lie. And, and I think yeah. part, of, part of the answer to, to it, which I think will come on to the, the next question, is that, I mean, my view is nature is awesome, but it is not ethically good or ethically bad. You know, there are, you know, there's compassion and there's love and there's all sorts of positive things and the evolution of cooperation within nature. There's loads of good stuff, but there's loads of absolutely sickening, horrific stuff as well. You look at, mm. um, you know, the average life of a wild animal, particularly if it's a species that's an R strategist, which basically says, mm. let's have as many kids as possible, but, and then maybe a couple of them will survive, right? The average life of those beings is, is not a good standard either. So I think of nature as amazing, but essentially amoral, right? It's not mm. a good ethical standard. Um, but the second question, it comes back to how you actually first started answering it, which is um, who matters and who warrants moral consideration and who gets our compassion? because I think almost everybody has some sort of compassion for other beings. Um, but the question is, okay, how far does that go and who gets to be included in our moral scope? Because as soon as you're excluded, frankly, you're in trouble because anything goes. So that would be a really interesting to understand your story on as well as this sort of who matters question. And you've already introduced it by talking about how you were thinking even at the age of six. How, how did that happen that you were 
thinking about, you know, family, friends, other humans, even globally about humans, and then about non-humans? How did that pattern play out? And again, where have you got to now in terms of mm. how do you draw that boundary of moral scope? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly. There was um, a moment where this is the moment that I remember when I was six, when I saw, you know, which started me questioning it, which is where I saw uh, a poster of a kitten having vivisection performed on them. And it was, you know, it might have been Peter, or it might have been some other group kind of protesting against animal testing. And that's what started me thinking, like, you know, why are we doing this to this kitten? And then I don't know. That's a brutal how... thing to say at six years old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I still remember the image now. It's quite a famous um, image, but I still, you know, I can still picture it exactly, you know, the colour of the kitten and everything. Um, so I, 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 I guess, like, at that point, we also got our first uh, family dog um, at that age. And, you know, we'd already had um, fishes at that point who I loved and, you know, who all, you know, died, <laughs> you know, as, as fishes do. And every time we'd have a yeah. little ceremony for them. But, you know, it, it's like, I, I guess at that point, I was really kind of aware of, of animals. And I guess like, uh, you know, for me, I have this... Uh, instincts to go to the to the underdog as it were you know the 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 group or the the being or whatever who's being kind of least respected or least protected so as a kid you know I always used to be into like Disney movies watching you know the stories of, of animals and I would never be interested in watching shows or films that had humans as a protagonist because to me human animals were like you know the dominant force who was exploiting and and you know, hurting other beings. Um, I, I don't know where that came from, but like, you know, all my toys were like little puppies instead of Barbies or, you know, whatever little human version of things. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know, I honestly don't know where that came from, but it continued. But as I got older and learned about different exploitations of, of human animals, obviously I, you know, my compassion extended there. So I've done a lot of work, you know, volunteering. I've done work um, outside of, um, you know, the UK. I've spent quite a bit of time in countries in Africa, like working with people who have been, you know, exploited and who are suffering at the hands of the West, essentially. And I believe that, like, I, I, it's really hard to kind of know exactly where that happened. But I guess as a kid, lots of young people have this kind of instinct to protect and to, um, you know, have this kind of empathetic thing with, with animals. There was that study done recently that said that uh, children, primary school children, think that farmed animals should be treated the same as humans, you know, and we kind of beat it out of them. And I guess I was lucky that my parents didn't do that, you know, but me and my brother, for example, are very different. My brother, you know, eats pigs like it's going out of fashion, you know, he's, he, he, he brought up the same as me, but has had a, went down a very different route. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's and, hard, and it yeah. And that and that sense of affinity with non-human animals, I think, is fairly common with mm. um, kids. Uh, but it's pretty uncommon to make the connection to f the food on your plate in the same way you did. How did how did that process happen? At what point did you draw the line between the kitten on the poster and thinking about what you're eating? Because that happened very early for you as well, didn't it? Yeah, I, I guess it was seeing the poster. Uh, you know, having a relationship with our first you know family dog, and talking to my parents about it and asking them you know because I, I I was told you know this is a pig you know so I remember eating ham you know and I remember my parents you know telling me like this is a pig so I, I would ask questions you know so did we you know 
I don't know, I, I can't remember exactly, but I'm presuming along the lines of, you know, did we have to kill the pig to eat it or whatever? Yeah. Um, and my parents told me the truth. So they they would have told me, you know, yes, we we get animals and we kill them and, and we cook them and we eat them. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not okay with that. I don't want to eat animals. So I guess it was probably just, again, this way that I was raised, which was more kind of open and honest and yeah. direct, I guess, um, was uh was helpful in in that capacity and i was allowed to be nurtured in that and you know obviously my parents made the right decision because i'm still very much vegan <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But yeah. It's, and it's the openness and the transparency you know they weren't hiding things from you they were being clear mm -hmm. and direct but it's also respecting your opinion when you when you said you know i don't want to be a part of that that that's quite unusual parenting i think in this day and age you know most people would be like would constrain you in some way probably emotionally if not and probably practically too and just you know don't be silly this is what we do you yeah know, here's the list absolutely. of reasons why it's normal necessary natural and you know so on and so forth but so that's quite yeah. distinctive too yeah yeah and I, I see that around me with you know when um I interact with young people who ask me you know so you know what are you eating why is it different from what I'm eating and you know I will tell them the truth because I respect them you know and I respect them having their opinion but then they'll go to you know, they'll come back to me the next time and be like, oh, my mum wouldn't let me buy soy milk or whatever, you know? Um, yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, you know, you just stick by your values and at some point you'll be able to do it. But, you know, yeah, a lot of parents don't, um, you know, it, it can be difficult to know how to feed a child if you're kind of dependent on traditional, which is to say, you know, meat eating, et cetera, as your nutritional kind of understanding of food and, and how to survive. Um, my yeah. parents had been vegetarian previously before they had me and um, my brother. So they had already had experience in, you know, creating vegetarian food at that time. You know, we're talking like, you know, early 90s. Um, so they'd already had that experience in, you know, uh, feeding themselves, you know, a nutritionally yeah. correct diet. But, you know, it, it, this is the other thing that kind of is, is difficult for me, because when you speak to when, when you have an attack from somebody saying, oh, well, you can't, you know, raise a kid vegan or you can't, you know, you can't be vegan and, and be well. Um, you know, there was an article the other day in the Telegraph that said, you know, a vegan life is a joyless life. You know, it's stuff like this. You're like, OK, cool. Yeah. Um, it, it's very annoying because the, the people come to you so suddenly aware of the nutritional value of vegetables. And you're like, well, OK, have you thought about the nutritional value of your meat and dairy and, you know, your fast food and these refined, um, you know, processed meats, et cetera. And of course they have no idea about fiber content. You know, and it, 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 it's, yeah, I, I divert, you know, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but essentially I think that one of the pieces of the puzzle is knowing how to, how to eat and how to, yeah. um, how to uh, do that. And in this day and age, it's a lot easier, um, you know, cause there are so many alternatives, but whether that's, at least in yeah. some places, yeah, yeah. In I, some think, places, I think you're right. There's, yeah. there's such a strong cultural inertia, so that that you know, mm. it's like an emotional response at first that I think blocks it. But there's 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 a lot of practicality there as well. Like you say, mm. it's like just shopping habits and knowing what to get, and and you know, and am I now going to have to prepare you know two different meals for the family if we're not all going to go down the same path? So there's a lot of practical friction points that mm -hmm. get in the way too. Yeah. And, how, and what was your journey like from um, vegetarian to vegan? Because mine was embarrassingly slow so i went vegetarian about 22 23 purely for ethical reasons mm. but for a variety of reasons which i won't go into now here but they were basically around a sense of social acceptability right it felt at that point like vegetarian was quite weird but going vegan was really really weird and really sort of disruptive mm. so i just sort of stopped there and then 
again, deploy the full denial, avoidance, cognitive dissonance, just to not really engage in the reality of dairy and eggs and so on and so forth for probably another couple of decades, which is a bit frustrating. But um, so that was that was a really long journey for me. And I think a lot of people sort of get get stuck there. But how did you go through that process of thinking about vegetarian into broader issues of different ways of exploitation beyond just you know having the flesh that you put in your mouth yeah yeah I, I you know I it took me a while I guess um it took me a few years to realize what the dairy industry is and yeah. I became well I guess when I was like uh, 10 or 12 I became involved in um Viva Vegetarians International Voice for Animals and they were sending me uh you know literature and again like you know posters and things like that and there was a poster of like a you know a cow uh, a female cow and a man in a business suit like underneath like sucking the yeah, others and it's like cut out the middle man yeah it's like yeah. that's genius and so so kind of like coming across those things started me questioning like oh okay I didn't realize that the dairy industry was also you know uh hurt, hurting animals so then I I became vegan but um I I then flitted backwards and forwards so um for practical reasons and like just kind of laziness, I guess. I let cheese kind of come back into my life. <laughs> and I guess from the age of like 18 to um, actually uh, like 28, I guess, I was kind of going backwards and forwards between vegan and vegetarian. And I was like largely vegan, but I would, you know, end up having a bit of cheese. Yeah. And then, you know, eggs and, and stuff like that. It all kind of slips back in. Once you kind of start closing yourself off to the reality, it becomes easy to... <sighs> you know you can tolerate everything but it, it was yeah. actually um it, it's funny because I went vegan vegetarian for ethical reasons but then the the thing that's actually made me stick or has has given me the best version of being vegan for me was um health stuff so I haven't had any health problems but um I came across um uh Dr John McDougall and his way of thinking the starch solution um and you know looking at the China study and all of these things and thinking about food and nutrition in a different way like actually being vegan can make you like live longer it can give you health it can give you longevity and i had never thought about veganism as a health thing do you know what i mean yeah um so then it was actually kind of looking at that and being like becoming aware of you know the blue zones becoming aware of uh you know how to eat you know the most kind of nutritionally rich diet that you can uh, and that happens to be vegan um and it was doing that that kind of made me finally not have any kind of push or desire for cheese or or anything like that like I always craved cheese as a vegan but yeah. I, it was just the kind of the moral thing that made me not and then it made me slip because sometimes you slip um but uh it was actually doing the health the health version of being vegan um and kind of doing this you know whole food plant-based you know no oil blah 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 approach that um that made it so easy and I can honestly just have to lock it in yeah. yeah you just have to log in and I can honestly like I haven't craved cheese once since going uh since eating that way since starting eating that way and obviously I wouldn't be able to eat cheese again anyway ever um but yeah. I, I, I just haven't cra- I just haven't craved it uh which makes it a lot easier <laughs> yeah sounds um, good yeah so yeah. so it sounds like when we've talked about these t- two big ethical questions there is a sense of um valuing uh nature in itself but also a very direct compassion for individual sentient beings, non-human animals and human animals as well. Is is that how you might summarize your sort of ethical stance now that it's 
Um, because I, I guess part of the reason I asked that question is um, that that's certainly my way of thinking. Obviously, in this sentientist way of thinking, says every sentient being matters. You know, needlessly harming them is a bad thing to do. Their flourishing is good. You know, that's almost the raw material, if you like, of a of a well grounded naturalistic ethic. Um, so some people will criticize that and say, look, you've gone too far in your compassion. We need to focus just on humans, you know, an anthropocentric view. Some people are even more aggressive than that and say only humans like me count. And we know where that mm. leads, right? Um, mm. But there's also another criticism which says that sentientism isn't going far enough. And it often comes from people who see a lot of value in nature because they say, look, yeah, the sentient beings matter. But what about the non-sentient stuff, you know, maybe plants, maybe the very super simplest animals, maybe rocks, rivers, trees, ecosystems, habitats, uh, biodiversity, you know, none of those things are sentient. They can't suffer in their own, right? But but don't they matter too? How, how do you think about, you know, whether and how we should have compassion more broadly than sentient beings? Yeah, I don't understand how you can not, like, I don't understand how you could separate these things from each other like they're all completely connected it's like thinking that you know what you eat isn't going to affect your mood you know or or your headache it's like trying to separate parts of your body like you do this to your left hand therefore you won't feel you, you'll only feel it there you won't feel it anywhere else in your body or whatever um i i just feel like all of these things are, are, are so bound up together that to care about humans is to care about everything is to care about everyone who we share this planet with um, from plants to, you know, non-human animals to mollusks to, you know, uh, like obviously all, all human animals as well. So I've, I've never found a convincing reason why these things should be separate and yeah. why we should only care for one of those things. Like I, I've never found a, an argument that would make me go, oh, yeah, you're right. Actually, only spiders matter. Uh, or only humans matter, or whatever. Um, I've never, never been convinced of that. And um, I, because I, everything I feel... is interconnected and interdependent, and exactly, how can you separate these things from each other? Like, how can we separate humans from from anim from non-human animals? Like, how can we? I, I you know, it, it just seems absurd to me. And I guess it always has done. And I guess this, you know, back to being raised kind of with an understanding and a respect for nature in the world around me uh, like it, it's always been so abundantly clear that if we don't you know have an awareness and have a respect and do what we can to protect you know biodiversity and and wildlife and you know etc then we're 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 on a downward trajectory as a as a species and as a planet um so yeah i i guess like I, it's just there's no kind of satisfying kind of moment yeah. i guess that i can point to but it, it just feels like it feels absurd to me that you would ever separate everything on this planet from each other and, and pick one thing to focus on because it, it's all to, interconnected and it does that the health and well-being of one being depends on the health and well-being of another or of the planet or of the atmosphere or um yeah does that does that make sense yeah it absolutely does yes and and there's and i think i share that view because my sense is i am quite a strict sentient sentiocentrist if you like i think that ultimately there are there is a set of beings and it's difficult the boundary is fuzzy we should never be overconfident about where that boundary mm. is it's always moving as the science develops as well so i'm completely open to the boundary of sentience being fuzzy fuzzy and indeterminate and we should be careful about where we set that um but i do think that wherever that boundary is that it's an important boundary because the things inside it can actually experience suffering and the things outside it can't 
but the things outside it are still important because of their interdependency with the things that are sentient. So I care about rocks, rivers, trees, ecosystems, biodiversity, you know, the earth, plants, because they're so critical to the flourishing of all of the sentient beings. But that's still different from having compassion for them in their own right. And, and I guess part of the reason I think that way is because there's another risk here for me. In, in the, and you'll find a lot of people who are deeply invested in the environmental movement, or they will think in a, uh, you know, maybe a biocentric or an ecocentric way that says, it's not just about sentient beings, it's about ecosystems, it's about all living things, it's, you know, they all matter. And if all of those things matter, not just the sentient beings, but the insentient beings, then there's no moral difference really between putting a knife into a carrot and putting a knife into a pig. And I'm like, mm. oh, no, 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 <laughs> you, mm -hmm. you've, you've, I, there, I think you've made a fundamental mistake because the freshly plucked, plucked you know, carrot does not experience anything negative as a result of that. And the pig clearly does. So although I would still care about the carrot instrumentally and the rocks and the rivers and the trees and the other plants, because it's, we're all interdependent, it's a different sort of caring than I have for sentient beings. Yeah, that so makes a lot I, of I sense. should have asked you the question instead of telling you, telling you my <laughs> my approach to it. But does, no, how good, much sense does that make? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and I wouldn't have um, made that kind of separation myself. Like I, I, I recommend that you go and watch the Life of Plants because since watching that, I now have a weird thing with plants where I'm like, oh, okay. I don't think we can say definitively that they don't feel pain. Um, it's just in a different way to how we feel it, and obviously how non-human animals feel it possibly but i don't know you know there's yeah. still a lot and just to be, and just and just to yeah. be clear this stance of sentientism doesn't tell us which beings are sentient or not it just says whatever sentience is wherever it is it matters so if we find decent scientific evidence that plants are sentient they matter morally too mm. that's just it yeah. so it doesn't it doesn't sentientism doesn't say only animals matter it just says all sentient beings matter and that could involve aliens, artificial intelligences, maybe plants. I mean, my mm. understanding of the plant evidence so far is that their behavior and communications, you know, the fungal networks and all that sort of stuff are absolutely amazing and much richer than people had thought before. Mm. But so far, they don't seem to have any of the an analogous architecture in terms of a centralized way of processing information that would give us any indication that they actually experience things. So I, I think they're awesome. We should keep an open mind. I haven't yet seen anything that indicates, or a, even anyone who actually claims, when you look at the claims, that they're mm. really experiencing something subjectively themselves. But No, I, yeah, I, I haven't either. But I definitely feel that, you know, like I, I remember as a kid, again, this idea of animals having their own languages. Like, and now we have more and more evidence of different ways of communication, you know, in bonobos. Like we know that pigs name that each of their piglets. Um, and we know, you know, the language of dolphins and, and whales, et cetera. Yeah. Like, and, and all of this has kind of emerged, like, over my lifetime, that people had a feeling that, you know, animals had a language or, you know, it could just seem logically true, but then it hasn't been scientifically proven. So with, with plants, like, yes, you're right, there is no scientific, there is nobody kind of actually, you know, scientifically claiming that. But I, you know, I would, I would be on the, on the fence of like, well, you know, we didn't know so many things um, about non-human animals because we feel that, you know, we kind of project our own way of understanding onto non-human animals. Yeah. So like, you know, when you think, oh, a pig is as intelligent as, you know, a three-year-old or whatever it is, like it's our version of intelligence that we're projecting, you know, onto, onto these non-human animals. Like, I, I just feel that 
there could be that we just don't understand the form of pain that plants feel. Yeah. Um, it could be that we just, we haven't got there yet. Um, and they certainly, you know, feel, you know, sun and, and dark, and they certainly respond to negative, you know, stimulus uh, in a very, you know, slow way, in a very different way to how we would ever, um, like, understand it. But to your point of, you know, like how how wide is our is our circle of, of protection um i do i do believe that you know ensuring that there's you know protection of the soil for example if we don't uh you know support proper soil and and uh all of that stuff then we end up in a situation where we can't grow any food anyway yeah. um but soil you know you could quite safely say at this moment in time has not been proven to be sentient <laughs> so yeah, yeah. um but it still so matters it, yeah but it still matters and obviously the worms do exist within the soil uh, and who you know are part of the creation of, of uh, rich soil are, are of course sentient i believe that that's probably been proven right <laughs> i think so um, i think worms are sort of close to the boundary but yeah but i think there's decent confidence for for many of the invertebrates except the, the absolutely super simplest so i think um, you know, sea sponges have no nervous system at all, but, you know, a, a, and jellyfish, again, it's touch and go. But for many of the other invertebrates, um, you know, including many of the worms, I think it's decent evidence there's at least some sort of basic sentience there. But again, it's, yeah. but, I, but I like the, your approach in that it's, we, we need to be humble, we need to be open minded. And the more we've learned about non human animals and plants, we've never mm. found out, oh, they were simpler than we thought. Mm. It's always been more rich, more powerful, more diverse, more. Uh, more distinctive and and through that period we've learned that you know humans are always less special than we thought you know we're just another dot on the evolutionary tree too so you know, i like i like exactly. the idea of keeping that humility the the only thing for me is making sure that humility isn't doesn't then undermine the confidence we do have for example in the very obvious highly valent sentience of farmed animals and that you know that, that has to matter more because otherwise there's a danger of falling back into this you know, again, the Twitter troll version of it is, well, plants feel mm. pain too. So, you know, I'm no worse than a vegan. Um, yeah, I do. I do think like when I, you know, when I was a kid and I do think I, I kind of still fall down onto this now is your point of, well, they have a central nervous system. So, you know, we, we know those beings that have a central nervous system are very likely, uh, if not it, you know, scientifically proven to feel pain the way that we do. Uh, and that's something that we can understand and, and easily stop doing. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's, that's kind of what it, comes down to and then obviously keeping an openness and an awareness of how these different ecosystems and how these different you know inanimate objects um and how plants and, and other things contribute to um to the richness of life for for humans and non-human animals with a central nervous system yeah. um i think that's but, that that probably ties it i think it does yeah and, and but you also make an important point which again it's understandable in a way that we start with ourselves as a frame of reference because we're mm -hmm. human so it's hard to have completely avoid an anthropocentric starting point and then we look for analogs elsewhere. And I think that's useful, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only way things work, right? And you can, um, you know, people have already found that in non-human animals where they have a different neural architecture when, you know, they don't necessarily have the same neocortex, but maybe their midbrain structures are analogous. So, so there's, we have to be open-minded about the fact that there might be other ways of experiencing or other ways of feeling pain as, mm. as you've hinted out there. And that's certainly true in the in a slightly sci-fi world of thinking about artificially intelligent sentience, you know, none of those are likely to have a um, prefrontal cortex or a, you know, midbrain structure or, you know, whatever it is at the brainstem, you know, mm. there'll be bits and ones and zeros and so on, but who's to say yeah. there aren't other, other architectures or other ways of experiencing. So, um, yeah, that humility is that, important. 
Yeah, and it's an interesting point as well, because when we look at AI and when we look at, you know, a potential future of, you know, robot workers or, you know, whatever it is that we, we want to create, we start to see a, a troubling pattern of, of the way that you treat, or the way that human animals treat these beings. And if we can quite easily leap to the idea that, uh, you know, a being that looks and resembles physically a, a human, um, but doesn't have emotions and feelings, then and can't feel what you do to them, then what we do to them is stuff that we wouldn't, well, that most people wouldn't want to do to a, to a human. Yeah. Um, and we treat them in ways that we wouldn't, you know, want to treat people, for, or at least want to admit to treating people. And we see it with uh, animals as well. So when we look at, you know, the, the relationship between people who abuse animals or people who uh, are working in situations where they like slaughterhouse workers, et cetera, when they're kind of exposed to this kind of violence and when they're doing these things like time and time again, there is a tie to domestic violence. So people who abuse animals or, you know, or, or kill animals, there's a big relationship between that and, um, you know, serial killers. There's been a lot of studies yeah. in, into that. And then there's been studies into people in slaughterhouses ending up, um, you know, performing domestic violence. So I think this idea that we can, I, I think it's, I, I think it, it needs to be considered and it, and it needs to be, uh, approached in a way that doesn't mean like oh we've just created these bots or you know whatever who don't have any feeling therefore we can just treat them how, however we want to treat them because it starts to create a potentially dangerous link to treatment of, of actual humans and we already see it you know with for example slaughterhouse workers and migrant workers and you know there was that uh, article just came out this week about migrant workers on fishing boats off the coast of the UK being abused and uh, you know receiving three pounds fifty an hour and uh, yeah. all of these things that they fall victim to um we're already doing it. So I think it's, yeah, it's troubling when we start to kind of remove empathy or remove uh, or, or, or not allow the kind of the growth and, and development of empathy and feelings towards, you know, all, all sentient beings that it, it can lead to dangerous and more damaging situations. Yeah. It can warp ethics in others, other areas and desensitize ourselves to exploitation and violence that can span across the species and even the substrate boundary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a much better way of putting it <laughs> my rambling <laughs> no i like thank yeah. you thank you is it's an important link to make and um, because i think it also comes back to something we might talk about in this final question you know quite often i don't think these things are really even trade-offs it's like a win-win-win across environment human and non-human and that's just one error i think if we can improve our ethical standards and our consistency when it comes to thinking about non-human animals i think it will have enormous positive knock-on impact on intrahuman ethics too but Let's come on to that in this final. So this final equally crazily big question is how can we make a better future? So one thing, you know, I'd love to know if you have a vision of a sort of utopian future that we might be able to get to and what that might look like. Yeah. Um, okay. So I guess I, I like, I am a kind of practical kind of, I guess, you know, on the edge of rationalist type person. So it's, it is hard. I mean, the to... answer might be no, because we can come on to yeah. talking about the role of the media and sentient media and how to drive positive change now. Yeah. But I just wanted to check if you had a utopian vision. <laughs> you know, a utopian, like in the ideal, like beautiful future, yeah. like, you know, all, you know, all beings living together, you know, in, in, well, I guess that, no, I guess the answer would be no, Jamie. Um, <laughs> it, it's complicated, right? Because you can't say everything living in harmony with each other because oh, there has to be friction and there has to be, you know, challenges and it can't just be an easy life. You know, we need challenges and we need things to, to overcome, like, you know, as, as a planet, uh, the relationships we have with different animals and in, in, in like, in within within the own, their own species, et cetera. Like, it's, it's not easy. Um, yeah. 
so you know the, the kind of the, the natural instinct to say kind of like oh you know it's all beautiful everyone's happy like all the animals are free like la 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 um you know that's that's just a bit too um simplistic and unrealistic but i i think that what would be great to see in the coming you know years is a development it is more understanding and openness so this idea that we don't center you know farmed animals in the media that we don't acknowledge um you know that other beings have uh, you know emotionally complex lives to not allow that to be kind of front and center of the conversation when we're looking at such huge numbers compared to just the the human animal population you know we're what like seven billion people on the planet 72 billion land animals you know this it's just it's just warped that we're not um centering their suffering that we've created um because it's that's down to us that's down to our constructs and our approach to food um, i don't think and- people people don't understand that scale right because from one perspective just the the sheer number of individual sentient beings it's mind-blowing as you said right you know 7.8 7.9 billion humans 72 billion land animals one to three trillion aquatic animals that we farm and fish just so if you think right here's the pie chart of all of the sentient beings on the planet individuals who have experiences humans are like a tiny little you know almost invisible slice in there but we've driven that scale and are causing suffering in all of the rest of the pie but it's also true on the environmental side as well because the i you know i would argue and um you know your articles have helped me understand this the the most visible and the most serious scale impact of humans on the face of the planet is not the humans it's animal agriculture and that's true Mm. in terms of land use and water use and you know most of the other metrics as well so it's 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 like a massive force multiplier of human impact that just isn't recognized yeah and it is is super difficult to think about these numbers and i you know when we're talking to people like if you you know look at education if you look at how we communicate these ideas like and and in the media you have to bring it down to one uh, like you know you have to show the 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 suffering of one being so you you know you mentioned at the beginning about how you you know you might see a story about a farmed animal it'll be an individual farmed animal that escaped um you know that that's how we can picture it we can't you know in your brain like you can't unless you have you know like very uh you know number centered mind like you can't picture what 72 billion looks like you can't picture what 7.8 billion looks like you can't picture what a million looks like it's just inconceivable yeah it's just what i don't care um you know it's just it's complicated it's it's big and it and and it's annoying so i think that like you're right that 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 it is so difficult to comprehend and that is part of the reason why i think we don't cover it in the media um, but another reason why we don't cover it in the media is there are, you know, a small number of groups who control the meat and dairy industry. So it's not a whole, it's not, you know, millions of organizations. It's a very small number of organizations who dominate. And in order for them to continue to dominate and to continue to make profit, uh, it's definitely in their interest to ensure that this news and this information isn't shared widely. And a lot of the times you end up, you know, if you watch BBC News, you know, the, the expert that they get to talk about, you know, a farmed animal issue will be somebody who's in the animal agriculture business, yeah. you know? So we, we, we don't have this ability to kind of present unbiased news. Well, who, um, who else would need representing in that conversation? You know, you just need the farmers. Exactly, well, of course. exactly. So I guess, you know, to answer your question of, of the future, like I, I would love to see a future where at least we present um, animals in, in, a, in, in a way that we, 
can understand their sentience in a way that we can start to question um, and start to allow more people to understand what's happening on this such you know big scale um i think that that would be a wonderful start i think that if we were just thinking about climate crisis if we were reporting on climate crisis and we we every time we saw it mentioned you know in the media we like we started to see more frequency of talking about animal agriculture as we did you know with oil and fossil fuels if we got to the point where it was like synonymous with climate crisis um that would be a wonderful you know step forward and i think that presenting people with you know uh easy routes to having a very like nutritious very affordable diet would be great and obviously it depends on where you are in the world but i think that in the west we for a majority of people in the west have access to you know potatoes dried beans things like that um so it would be you know a very simple kind of way to start talking about nutrition in a in a, in a better way um and yeah encouraging people to reduce the amount of uh, meat and dairy that that we're consuming in order to kind of really make meat and dairy industries feel the pressure um yeah. and we're seeing it you know we're seeing more ag gag laws coming out you know in the states and in canada we're seeing you know labeling issues in the eu uh you know people meat and dairy fighting against terminology that you know vegan or plant-based meat is using like we're, we're seeing them fighting back um, and then yeah. yeah exactly um yeah sorry pushbacks not fighting back but yeah they um yeah it's, well, both. <laughs> Well, yeah, I feel like I feel like the plant-based. Well, yeah, I guess I, I I kind of feel like the plant-based companies are just kind of like existing. They're like, yeah, this is it now. This is the future, um, and the the meat industry is definitely, um, yeah, pushing back on them. But it's a but difficult. Yeah, I guess that, that, yeah. It's a difficult dynamic as well, and and I sometimes draw some parallels between what we saw with the tobacco industry, and we're still seeing with the tobacco industry, and with big oil, and now with animal agriculture because you've clearly got powerful forces who want those industries to continue and many communities and families and you know many thousands millions of people who depend on them economically as well so there's a force saying look we want this message to to go out and predominate but you've got this weird situation where actually all the most of the consumers want to hear that message as well because they want to be reassured you know they want to be reassured reassured that tobacco smoking was cool and didn't cause cancer they wanted to be reassured that climate change wasn't really happening because wouldn't it be better if it wasn't and we didn't mm. really cause it and they want to be reassured that animal farming can be humane so you've got this strange situation where the the lobbyists you know are lobbying people who want to be lobbied right they really want to believe mm. this stuff the wishful thinking and the and, and the uh, desire not to change and not to be challenged is really powerful it um, really is and I, so, I think you know the meat the the tobacco industry playbook in the sense of like how the the pr industry kind of pushed back and the meat and dairy industry playbook it, they're exactly the same yeah. um what we're, what we're seeing in the sense of like you know exactly the same approaches exactly the same things that they're doing but what we also see like with oil um and with tobacco you know think about oil for a start like the, the way that they um like exxon you know started their r&d labs in order to fight back on the idea of climate crisis in the beginning in the very beginning the media were reporting that climate change was real um, and that this was happening and it was scientific and it was it was it was something that was that we needed to start acting on now in the very beginning of when it first started getting reported on. And then Exxon came in, started their R&D labs uh, to kind of start creating question marks around it. And then we have all of the media reporting switches to is climate change real? Like, is it a thing? Because uh, Exxon aren't sure, you know, it, it, it's like creating this question. It's essentially like they're delaying the inevitable because every year they're in operation, they're creating more and more profit. And if they can just delay it by a year, 
then great. You know, that that's like millions of dollars for them. Um, and the same with the tobacco industry doing the exact same stuff. And yeah. also, interestingly, with and, tobacco. And often with the same PR companies, the same lawyers, the yeah. same marketing teams, you know, they've, I, the I can imagine same. the pitch deck where they said, look what we did for tobacco. We can do that for you. And there's the same people yes. often, same, same it, playbook. It, yeah. Yeah, it's the exact same people in in some cases. And with tobacco, like we there there's documentation of the media coverage of tobacco and the more positive articles about tobacco smoking, obviously that the more, you know, people consume uh, tobacco, but then as soon as the surgeon in the run up to when the surgeon general's message, you know, got approved and got put on 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 tobacco packets, there was a, a flurry of negative uh, articles. So the number of negative articles that went out um, in in the time leading up to when the Surgeon General's message was 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 huge, and then the decline in sales happened, and then the Surgeon General's message goes on. So I feel like with meat and dairy, like if we can produce more content that is presenting meat and dairy in a negative way and making people question it, then we can lead into a way where we can even get the Surgeon General's uh, you know warning on you know how do you like charcuterie? How do you say it? Charcuterie, the, the, yeah charcuterie yeah, uh, and cured meat and you know all of these things that have now been proven to cause cancer scientifically like yeah. why don't we get some you know surgeon general's warning on that stuff um but yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a good parallel and it's it's definitely something we we think a lot about at sentient media yeah and that in a way that's a that's part of the reason why i think with this sentientism idea I want to make sure we're focusing on epistemology and facts and evidence and reason as well. Because mm. some people will say to me, look, Jamie, this, this, this idea is all well and good, right? But what, don't we just need the compassion side? Don't we just need sentiocentric compassion? Isn't that enough? And, mm. and sometimes they'll say that partly because they, they're worried about the sensitivities of people who might have a supernatural worldview and so on, who you know, I'd absolutely partner with, with the common aim of you know, driving the compassion side forward as well. So this isn't mm. an exclusive thing. It's just saying... We need the compassion, but we need the good, well-grounded epistemology as well. Because when you look mm -hmm. at a challenge like animal agriculture, of course, there's a problem of a failure of compassion. You know, there are some people who just say, I don't care. But I don't think there's really that many. I think, I think most people, instead of saying, I just choose not to care, you know, they're, they're not important to me. I don't care about suffering of non-human animals. Those people are quite rare. Most people rely on broken epistemology. So they'll say animals don't suffer or farming can be humane or, you know, and the, the, the list goes on or humans need to consume meat to survive. Right. These aren't failures of compassion. These are just errors, factual errors. And that's mm. partly why I think we need this combination of sentiocentric compassion and a well-grounded naturalistic epistemology, because, it, you know, arguably, if we do adopt that approach, it does make it harder for Exxon and the tobacco companies and the big agricultural companies to do you do what you've said, which isn't necessarily just say these things are perfect, but it's just, you know, breaks things enough, introduces enough uncertainty, um, you know, it's a sort of global level sort of gentle gaslighting that's enough to enable them mm. to carry on. Um, I think, yeah, but I think one thing that's that we've kind of alluded to throughout this conversation is the idea that people do pick and choose and take the facts and take yeah. the uh, ideas and take the sentiments that they want to that already reinforce how it is that they're feeling so uh, yeah. you know for example I subscribe to like a lot of the um, meat and dairy industry newsletters and they go around like I had one yesterday that said you know animal agriculture only accounts for four percent you know of emissions in the US um, or and, and and if we reduced uh, if we cut out animal agriculture it would only reduce our emissions by 0.7 percent 
something like that, you know, and you're just like, okay, cool. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. cause they, they found this information um, from some, uh, you know, report and then kind of skewed it to, to fit their narrative. Like we, we've just published an article actually called, um, you know, one study, five different headlines. Like there's one report about um, diet change in, in, in vegan, uh, vegan diet for, for children. And all, you know, these five different news outlets reported on it with completely different headlines. Yeah. Like yeah. even if we have the facts, every organization, every, you know, individual and every publication will present it and, and, and skew it to fit their narrative. So the Telegraph will make it into, you know, oh, vegan kids are, you know, deficient in whatever, you know, whereas veg news would be like, vegan kids are great, whatever. Yeah. So yeah. You know, we, we always have this kind of media bias and we always have biases within us. And I think that ultimately there isn't any one kind of answer there isn't any one approach that that works but everybody's no. you know efforts and everybody's approaches combined you know are more likely to reach somebody so whether it's a religious angle whether it's empathy and compassion whether it's you know data and science like i feel that you know it's there, there is something there for everybody and at sentient media we definitely try to cover all of those bases and we do make sure that when we are reporting on studies you know that they're peer reviewed that we're looking yeah. at you know scientific journals we're not um, you know, we're not going down the route of just kind of baseless op-eds. Um, we, we do put uh, a lot of energy into our reporting and investigations to make sure that they're robust so that when somebody forwards it to somebody else, you know, they can't pick it apart and be like, oh, well, it's just a bunch of vegans, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, yeah. we're, we're not, you know, we're not a bunch of vegans. <laughs> um, you know, we have a very diverse uh, group of people writing for us. And yeah, it's, um, yeah. Yeah. And given the context where in a weird sense, almost everybody disagrees with us and almost all of the forces with power are pushing in a different direction. How can, how do you think media organizations can break through that? Because, um, you know, there are in mainstream media outlets, there are, there's the occasional person, you know, there's like Chaz Nuki Burden at the Guardian or, you know, Henry Mance will do something on articles at the F on, on animals at the FT or, you know, um, Vox have done some great stuff with Kenny Torella. And, you know, so there are, mm. you know, there are places where, occasionally something will pop up and a journalist or a perspective will, will break through. There was the, you know, the New, York, New York Times thing recently mm. where it sort of failed at the last hurdle, but at least you mm. know, surfaced some of the issues. So those things occasionally randomly pop up in mainstream media, but I can imagine most of the readers of those articles just sort of, or most of the audience of those newspapers just sort of skip the article because it's like, you know, I don't want to engage with that topic because I sort of know where it's going to lead. So I'm going to look somewhere else. And there's also a danger, I guess, with more specialized media like sentient media that again, it's we end up sort of talking to our own audience and living with our own bubble. And how do you think we can avoid that challenge of being stuck within our own ecosystems, talking to other people who already agree with us and actually break out and have that wider cultural and societal influence we all want and political yeah. influence? Yeah, I, I love this question. It's something that we think about a lot obviously um at sentient media like uh to your point of just when an, when an article gets into mainstream media um that does center animals like do people even engage with it uh, and the answer is based on um like you know a few samples that we've looked at that they that they don't that the drop-off is quite high <laughs> um so if you have a popular journalist um reporting on you know other issues and then all of a sudden they they do a piece you know uh, because they're vegan or because they're curious about uh you know um food systems whatever that does send to animals then they do see like a drop off in, in in views so yes that that definitely is true um but to the point of how we get outside of the the echo chamber as it were 
we at Sentient Media, we have a few different things that we do. So like our sentientmedia.org is kind of like the most visible, but the like the least representative of what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. um, you know, a lot of our work is in digital services. So we know that when people are researching, the first thing they do is go to Google, right? That when they when people want to ask questions about, you know, what is the meat industry? Like, you know, what is the poultry industry? How much does a dairy cow cost? Like all of these phrases and, and, and terms that, that we Google, and we've seen an increase actually um, in searches around kind of animal um, suffering and, and, and intensive farming over the last few years on Google. But um, what we want to do is make sure that we're there, the other groups that we work with, we have about 15 different partner organizations who we work with and create content for. Um, and we write long form articles that kind of answer these questions. And we base it obviously in fact, um, and, you know, peer reviewed studies, etc. Um, and as a result of that, we've managed to create content for around 4000 different search terms um, that now ranks in the top three slots in Google. Um, wow. So that's that is reaching outside the echo chamber, like, because we're not, you know, we're, it's not a social media campaign. Uh, it, it's organic, real traffic. It's real searches. Um, and we've reached um, millions of people through that. Um, but then on top of that, we also have our Writers Collective community. So to me and to the people, you know, at Sentient Media, we believe that in order to be visible and to start to shift these media narratives, we need people like all over the world to be, uh, you know, pitching articles that centre animals, especially farmed animals, to local media outlets and then to, you know, national and then international so if we can start to kind of create pockets of coverage um, across the globe, then we start to succeed in, in, in fully shifting these narratives. So we have this writers collective community. We have about 600 members at the moment. We're in about 30, uh, 30 to 35 different countries. Um, and we have courses where we train people, you know, how to go from advocate to journalist, how to create content that's going to be more visible and how to pitch. And, you know, your point at the very beginning about, you know, an individual farmed animal is, is, is a great um uh, example of how to pitch a story and how to make sure that you're creating a piece of content that is going to be more likely to get published so i think over the last 12 months our community has published about 1500 articles um wow. yeah and yeah and we but we but on top of that we've you know we've pitched thousands of publications so even if pitches don't get accepted just by being there in an editor's inbox with this content you start to create Oh, okay. Maybe this is something that that we want to report on. Um, you yeah. know, we had somebody they get a sense some... that things are moving. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, we had somebody who was part of our uh, sentient media journalism fund. He managed to get an article published um, in a Nigerian paper that was across the whole of Nigeria, talking about factory farming um, and climate crisis and you know zoonotic diseases. So it was like you know a, a huge achievement um, for, yeah. for him, and to see that actually in print across like the whole of Nigeria was just awesome. It's amazing. Um, so yeah, like you know that, that these are the approaches that we're taking um, to getting outside of the echo chamber, and I think that you know we have to do that. And if we're not doing it, then you know we 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 fail, um, yeah. and we certainly won't shift media narratives by just you know like navel gazing and and talking about it amongst ourselves. Um, so yeah, we're you know this year we're hoping to build more kind of um, coalition, more partnership relationships, you know, with other organisations. We already have other publishers that we work with um, and syndicating content and things like that. Uh, so Brilliant. yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely the front of my mind. 
constantly. <laughs> yeah, question. thank you. So, so people in your echo chamber in your bubble, like me, will go to <laughs> sentientmedia.org and sign up for your newsletter. But actually, yeah. the real power is the Writers Collective and the working with other publishers and the search work, which is getting out to the people we actually need to influence. So, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. fascinating. Thank you. It's great to have a look behind the behind the scenes and see that influence. <laughs> and the, the the other thing that I find frustrating with mainstream media, and I'm continually bugging people on Twitter about this, is it's just their editorial standards about how they conceive of and discuss farmed animals. Um, you yeah. know, and just simple things like, you know, why are you talking about how many tons of fishes there are? Why aren't you quantifying how many individual fishes there are? Well, no, yeah, I, they, yeah. I mean, they can't, can they? Because we, yeah. we don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> the one thing that annoys me is when they don't stick to their own editorial standards. So yeah. some articles like in the Guardian, they say in their editorial standards that they will use pronouns if the gender is, if the sex is known of, of the animal. Yeah. Um, but but then, then, so that's already in the standards, but then they... That's already in their standards, but they don't stick to it. Uh, there are articles that I have read that, um, you know, the gender, uh, you know, it's like a male piglet um, and they don't refer, they refer to him as it's it. it. Yeah. 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 Uh, and you're like, well, it's in your editorial standards. Like, why aren't you sticking to it? That's amazing. Um, I didn't realise it was actually in, I, I'm not sure whether to be encouraged that it's already in the standards or annoyed that they're not following them, but I guess that's well, it something. Should be in, it, it, actually, the Associated Press, like it, it should be in anyone who follows um, that, that you do use a pronoun if the gender is known. Yeah. Um, so that, that should be standard. Um, but yeah, nobody sticks to it. And certainly nobody uses it if there is no known gender. Um, yeah, that's a that's something that uh, is 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 very annoying and upsetting because how can you use it for a you know a living yeah. being, right? <laughs> it just yeah. seems absurd. And apparently, yeah. it's worse in the UK. Like when I speak to people in the states, um, they say that actually when they speak to people in the UK, uh, we always use it, uh, and and it kind of shocks them. Um, but yeah, I don't you know I don't know. That's yeah, just I think it is. Well, let's look yeah. forward to a future where even mainstream media has a completely sentientist worldview when they're writing and commissioning their articles and um uh, you and sentient media are doing a great uh, contribution and pushing us towards that world so yeah Thanks. well it's been a fascinating conversation thank you so much for sharing your philosophical journey and your vision for you know a better a better future too how how would, is the what's the best way of people following you learning more about your work signing up to sentient media of course yeah, so sentientmedia.org um, is our like website where you'll find uh, access to our newsletter, to all of our social channels. We're on TikTok now. Um, Brilliant. And... Yeah, my kids won't let me go on it yet. I mean, there, <laughs> there is a sentientism TikTok, but I've been too scared to post anything on it yet. Yeah, yeah we've only just we've only just started. I'm I'm not going near it. Um, I'm passing that to much much more able people than me. Um, but we also have a uh, a monthly recap of the media news so basically every every month we do a 60 second roundup um of, of all the news that we've gathered that we've seen um that kind of talks about farmed animals either directly or indirectly uh, and that's narrated by jasmine lever who's the invisible vegan who's awesome and i don't know how she does it because she has to fit in so much into 60 seconds she's an absolute pro um but yeah i'd recommend that for people if you're curious about and that's on youtube following. too as well isn't it yeah that's on youtube yeah on our youtube channel um yeah the month in a minute it's called and and that's good for if you're curious about tracking how the media is reporting um on animals um but yeah head to sentimedia.org head to our youtube channel um and yeah like get in touch and obviously join up to our writers collective if you're interested in exploring how to write or how to pitch or you know if you just want to if you want to write op-eds if you want to do letters to the editor like whatever it is um, sign up to our writers collective community and you can get access to mentorship like we have a huge range of people and, and different skill sets and different reasons for being there 
um, within that community. And you can sign up on our website. It's all free. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you again. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and it's been great to have you as a guest on Sentientist Conversations. Oh, it's been awesome. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, <laughs> thank Anna. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?